0: Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. She's Anne Friedman. She is Aminatuso. On today's agenda, we are talking about the science of friendship with science journalist Lydia Denworth, who's the author of Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. <laughs> friendship the evolution biology and extraordinary power of life's fundamental bond is out now and uh, is something that we read and informed a few of the sciencey parts of our own book about friendship so uh, here I am with Lydia Lydia thank you so much for being on the podcast thanks for having me it's great to be here so I know you are a science journalist I'm curious to hear why the science of friendship was something that you wanted to delve into. You know, part of my job as a journalist, and as a
1: science journalist in particular, is to sort of go and listen to scientists, especially when they talk to each other and try to work out what they think is interesting and important and new. And this idea that there was a biology and an evolutionary story to friendship was definitely that about five years ago I went to a conference for social neuroscience and it it was a lot about this and so I was really intrigued because I hadn't really thought about the biology of friendship which makes me like pretty much everybody else and I thought friendship huh (laughs) that seems Mm -hmm. like something I could dig into and You know, I'm at a point in my life where my kids are beginning to go off to college and I was losing my mother, you know, I'm in transition a little bit. I mean, I have my husband of many years, but um, it did sort of seem like a wake-up call. Uh, Hey, (laughs) maybe I better really, really make sure that I'm paying attention to my friends and that I guess that I have my friendship
0: house in order. So it was personal for you as well as what it you're saying, It was both, basically. yeah. I mean, it was work, yeah. and it
1: was personal, and I thought that I would really like to become an expert
0: <laughs> on this. And what was the conversation among scientists? I know you mentioned this, you know, moment five years ago, mm-hmm. but were they talking about friendship as something that was really well understood on a level of neuroscience, or were did they have a lot of questions, or what? what about their conversation sparked your interest? They do have a lot of questions, scientists. Um, Part of what they were
1: talking about was the science of social behavior in general, and then friendship in particular. I think what I thought was so interesting is that when it comes to friendship, people have enjoyed friendship and celebrated friendship for thousands of years. And so it's not that nobody ever thought about it. But we didn't think about it as sort of shaping our biology and... So social neuroscientists do work both in humans and animals. So that meeting is a little unusual in the scientific world because it brings together these two sort of different strands of science. But that's actually the whole story about this new understanding of friendship is that by discovering friendship or something like it in a whole lot of other species, it tells us that there's this much larger story uh, to the phenomenon of friendship and that you know how when people think about evolution they usually think about survival of the fittest and competition and even though Darwin apparently never said survival of the fittest but hey that's okay <laughs> we're um, you know that's how we understand it and there has been competition and that is true but cooperation turns out to be as important um, and so it's really also been survival of the friendliest and I just thought that was cool, <laughs> this idea that mm-hmm. that if you're good at making friends and you have strong friendships, that that's a skill that isn't just sort of going to make life more pleasant, but that is actually going to make life longer and healthier and maybe more successful. That seemed, you know, really cool. And the other thing is that things like empathy, there's a lot of pieces to the science of friendship. So understanding the social brain better is something that really has taken off in the last 10 to 20 years concepts like empathy we now understand that there's a neuroscience to empathy and that's really maybe in the last 10 years that that's happened and empathy and theory of mind so theory of mind is the ability to understand that someone else has a perspective that's different from yours and it develops in kids around about the age of three or four i mean it's a it's a constant process, but we think of children as having it from you know from about three or four, and that's not surprisingly when they begin to sort of make friends, right? Because then they sort of understand other people as someone separate. But so there's a whole lot more work's been done on things like empathy, on these evolutionary questions, on the social brain, on loneliness. Maybe you're familiar, that's probably the thing that the wider world is most familiar with. There's been a lot of talk of the risks of loneliness. And that's part of the story that interested me. But I also really liked the idea of doing the flip, of focusing on the flip side, on the positive and the benefits of social connection, because they are two sides of the same coin. So loneliness is what goes wrong, and friendship is what goes right.
0: I want to come back to loneliness. But first, I want to ask you to define this term, the social brain, because I think before I read your book, I would have maybe not known exactly what you were talking about. Yes.
1: So you know, we often think about the brain as learning and memory, and you know our senses, and it is all those things. But it turns out that huge swaths of our brain are occupied with other people, with understanding other people, <laughs> with um, with figuring out what they're all about, with interpreting what they're I'm saying. Like that
0: tracks with my experience. Yes. Yes. yes exactly. <laughs> and you know,
1: sometimes obsessively. But this whole field of social neuroscience. Only began in the '90s, um, and you know the the brain in general. I mean, the um, the '90s, 1990s, are considered the decade of the brain, and it's because that is when technology just took off, and. We suddenly had MRIs and fMRI. FMRI is a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, and it's that tube that you can stick someone in, and you can actually look at their brain, and the functional piece of it means that you can ask them to do some sort of task or to think about something, and then you can look at how their brain's activity changes while they're doing the task. Now, not surprisingly, there are limits to the tasks one can undertake while lying in a tube (laughs) in an MRI machine, but still like that made so much possible that wasn't possible before. And now the really latest work using that for friendship literally came out, oh, a year or two ago, there was this fascinating study by researchers at Dartmouth and UCLA that put people in an MRI, in an fMRI machine and looked at the way their brains processed video clips, different kinds of video clips, and then were able, they were able to predict out of all the people in their study who were all members of a graduate school program, who was friends with who based on the way their brains processed the video
0: clips that prompts the question for me of I guess it's like a little bit of a friendship chicken or egg question that my co-host Aminatu and I are always thinking about which is are we friends because we're alike or are we alike because we're friends like that's my immediate next question when I hear about that MRI study and that is the immediate next question that those scientists are asking so the answer is we don't know yet or are they working on it they're working on it we suspect that
1: it's both as Mm -hmm. is so often the case so it is Absolutely true in friendship that we are drawn to people who are more similar to us than than not. That does not mean that we cannot have friendships with people who are different. And of course, there's a wonderful richness to that. But historically and for most people, we are drawn to people who are like us. We have a lot more, we have a lot to talk about, sort of off the bat. And it's why I have a lot of friends who are middle-aged women with teenagers and creative jobs, (laughs) you know, um, Mm -hmm. and uh, especially writers. But worldview, shared worldview seems to be super important in the question of of what brings people together as friends. We also know though that when you spend time with someone, a conversation can uh, bring your brains into alignment. So. There's just the beginnings of studies showing the way the brain does change as you spend time together. we suspect, they suspect, we, I don't get credit. I'm, <laughs> I'm the reporter, <laughs> not the neuroscientist.
0: But uh, That was the universal we, right? We who are looking at this.
1: <laughs> we, we society um, suspect that, you know, it is both. It is that you are sort of drawn to someone who processes the world the way you do, but you also then become more like your friends. And I do just want to add the thing that I think is so cool about this particular study was that what they did was they... I said, it's video clips that they showed. Well, those video clips were very kind of different in feeling. You know, one was like a a sort of crazy late night comedy skit and another was a news piece about pollution seen from outer space and one was a technology review and one was a sort of, piece of uh, a mockumentary from Australia that was very dry humor and the idea was that they're they're designed to appeal to different senses of humor and different kinds of people and things like that you know the same thing that you would in your day-to-day life like think oh you know she laughed at that joke and I <laughs> you know I think that's funny she thinks that funny or you know the things that draw you together the things or if you both have passions for I don't know for Gilmore girls or whatever it is that like brings you together the fact that you like the same things that's sort of obvious what we didn't know was what would that look like in the brain and it turned out that it wasn't just like certain parts or even just the social brain parts it was like almost everything literally especially your visual and auditory attention so you are literally seeing and hearing the world more like your friends than the people that you're not close to, as close to. Um, and I just thought that was really cool.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it really tracks with, you know, something that we have talked about and written about a lot, which is that for us, some of our deepest and most important friendships have been with people in whom, like from the very start, we sense this possibility of wanting to kind of go to the same place. So it's not even just we share a worldview or we think the same jokes are funny, but like maybe we have the same general life aspirations or maybe we're both hungry in the same way for the same things. Um, maybe that means, you know, in a bigger political sense or maybe it means in terms of how we want to live our lives. I'm curious about that aspect too, of like not just we're accepting the world as it is in front of us mm-hmm. or interpreting it, but I'm, I'm wondering if the science has anything to say about forward looking as well. That's,
1: See, you really are making a very good scientist, Anne, because that is the question. So this this um, neuroscientist at Dartmouth named Talia Wheatley, who is leading this work, what she wants to do, and this is what the sort of technology has, is only just maybe barely beginning to let us do, is to see what happens when friends come together in conversation and if you can pinpoint in their brain activity something new happening, she calls it like a mm. walk in the woods and where do you end up and um, the sort of dance of friendship that she's trying to actually capture and see. So that requires you know, looking at two people's brains at the same time while they're in natural conversation or interaction and that's hard to pull off although we're starting to be able to do that. So that's one answer. Um, Mm-hmm. But it is also true that uh, I mean I agree one hundred percent with what you're saying that you gravitate to people who yeah who are want to want some of the same things out of life that you do, I think, um, and I mean when hearing you say that makes me think all the way back to when my husband and I met in college, and that I feel like that was very much something that pulled us together and there's a chemistry to friendship, just like there's a chemistry to romance there's that that kind of you know let's walk through this life together <laughs> actually one of the concepts that i really liked and it's not a brand new one it, it but um that social or developmental psychologists who look at the lifespan developed was the idea that we all have a social convoy that travels through life with us and in fact what happens is there's change in those people that travel with us but um but you are then sort of looking ahead at where you're going to be going in life
0: Right. And I, th- I would love to hear you talk a little bit about some of the terminology we use when it comes to friendship, because I know that terms like kinship or bonds or, you know, mm-hmm. a-, a lot of the ways that I would say that I have a kinship and I have bonds with all kinds of people, right? Not just my blood relatives, not just people who could legally be called family, but friends you know and those are the people who come to mind first in some in some instances more so than you know family or romantic partner and i'm curious about the language that some of these scientists use whether they're looking at like the animal kingdom or trying to study humans and and how do they draw those lines between okay so your convoy is obviously a lot of different types of people is there a way of pinpointing the role of friends in particular as standing out among all these other social relationships this is really an interesting um,
1: piece of this whole science, I feel like. it To me, so on some levels, what happened with this work is that it helped to clarify what friendship is. Because one reason scientists didn't study friendship for a long time in this kind of serious uh, biological way, or the neuroscience, or the evolution of it, is because friendship's a little bit hard to define and hard to measure. It's a little squishy, <laughs> um, and it was mm-hmm. seen as maybe a little soft but what has happened is as they've worked on it in in multiple fields but especially in animals in other other animals in other species it's easier to strip away the complex variables of human life and sort of get down to the nitty-gritty and at its simplest friendships basically include three things they're long-lasting they're positive in that they make us feel good each each partner in the relationship and they're Cooperative, So there's a reciprocity to them. That's the bit about, you know, you help me, I help you, we're there for each other when we need it. And that's really what friendship at its core is about. It's about helping us weather the stresses of day-to-day life. Um, but so once you have that definition, there's some clarity about what friendship is. But the other thing, and this gets to your question, is that this new science of friendship blurs the lines between relatives and romantic partners and friends because it's emphasizing the quality of the bond and it's saying if you have a relationship with someone where it's positive and it's long lasting and there's cooperation and you know you get a lot of benefit from it that's a friendship essentially and in fact the word friend is qualitative the word sister or brother or spouse or cousin is categorical. It tells you something about our biological relationship or our legal relationship. If I want to describe my relationship with my husband or, or somebody wants to talk about their sister as their best friend, they're saying that to tell you that there's value added to the relationship, right? That it's better <laughs> than your average. Because let's face it, not all family relationships are so great. Not all marriages are so wonderful. Hopefully for most people they are. But, um, so what we know now is that, I mentioned the social convoy, the the people that sort of travel through life with you. Well, most of us have in our inner circle, just an average of maybe four people. It's like two to eight, um, but the average is four. And they're often half family and half friends. We sort of have a head start on those tight bonds with family just because you spend so much time together. But... It doesn't really matter who those people are. It's the quality of the relationship, not the origin of the relationship. So on that level, like it could be just full of your really good friends, your inner circle. And then you have these sort of concentric circles moving out from you that can still be people about whom you care very much, but you don't see as often or you know, you're a little less close. And so I kind of love, for me, friendship has suddenly become the template for all other relationships. (laughs) I mean, and I mean by that, that if the quality bond is one that is positive and long-lasting and reciprocal, then that's what you want your your tightest relationships to look like, all of them. Um, And those are the ones that are good for your health. I mean, that's the other big, big takeaway from this book is that friendship is good for your health on so many levels. And it it helps you actually live longer. It gets inside your body and it changes the way your heart responds to things, the way your immune system responds to disease, and um, and your stress responses, your cognitive health, your mental health, even the rate at which your cells age is affected by the quality of the relationships in your life. And so the and the bonds that do that that have that magic power <laughs> are those really strong friendship-like bonds.
0: So you mentioned this kind of concentric circles model mm-hmm. of like a handful of people who are who are most intimate to you and then and then moving on outward. I think one thing that is often difficult for me to parse with research like this is in some ways it seems descriptive, right? We looked at a population of people and most of them had this number of people close to them. But then in other cases, it's used in more of a prescriptive fashion. And people say like, oh, it's only possible for humans to truly be intimately close to X number of people. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit about, as you interpret the science, what parts of it are about, you know, just sort of the reality of the choices humans, the human animals are making. um, And what part of it is about, you know, what we have a capacity for or what we are maybe um, evolved to do or what, I don't know what, what our social brain can handle, if that makes Mm. sense. I think I understand what you're asking. For
1: instance, you're right that some of the first, the early part of this science was just kind of, identifying a phenomenon which was the idea that first of all friendship was something that we should define and measure and then this idea that there was a link to health was interesting but all there was at the beginning was an association in in science they call it a correlation right so this is true and this is true at the same time and we don't know whether one is causing the other we're just noticing that they're happening at the same time and so the mm-hmm. early work in this was really just that it was kind of just like identifying a, a phenomenon and then the and that and that was the work that really showed um, it was actually focused on something very clear cut. It was about mortality. And it was like, you know, you're either alive or you're dead at the end of a, you know, say a decade long study. And what they found generally was that the people with this more connections were more likely to still be alive ten years later than people who were more socially isolated. And everyone said, Well that's interesting. Why would that be? But the second thing that this science has done, and this is what's been happening more recently, is it's digging into why Would that be true? What could it be that social relationships are doing to change the way your body responds to disease? And an early theory in humans was a concept called social support, which is basically what you think of about friendship like you know if you have a friend around maybe you're more likely to go for a run with her because she says hey come on let's go do this you know I mean it works the other way too maybe you stay and have an extra drink at the bar when you shouldn't right and most critically maybe you're healthier if you have more friends just because that means a friend is there to drive you to the hospital should you need to go but then what happened that is so interesting is that when you started looking at this when when evolutionary biologists and primatologists started looking at this in other species, what they found was that even baboons with the strongest social bonds are healthier, live longer, and have more and healthier babies. And in evolutionary terms, you cannot do better than reproductive success and longevity. But the thing is, baboons do not drive each other to the hospital, (laughs) right? So something else had to be going on, something deeper. And so that's kind of what these biologists are trying to figure out. Like, I mean there's still a bunch we don't know about it, but, but if you if you see something in enough different species and you study it from enough different angles and you keep getting the same result, you start to be able to make some, some claims about cause. And so that's kind of where we are now, um, is, is that there are some pieces of this that where we really can see that this one, you know, that having good friends causes you to be healthier and to live longer and in these very specific ways.
0: One of the parts I love in your book is your very measured take on how social media and um, the various ways we use the internet affects our social brains. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, thank you. I'm glad you think so. (laughs) Because I I will admit that when I was working on this book, you know, everybody said, Oh, you're writing a book about friendship. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about social media. And I was kind of dreading it wading into this. It just felt like a quagmire. It feels like this thing that everybody is hysterical about. I thought, How am I going to figure out, you know, what the real story is here? There are a bunch of studies that say it's bad for you, and there's studies that say it's good for you. But happily for me, what happened in the last, even just in the last year or two, was that there's this new raft of science that really is telling a very clear story. It's saying that the early work linking social media to well-being in general and well-being is kind of a big term um, that encompasses a bunch of things, including relationships. But that's where there's been these kind of hysterical media articles that are based on only slightly less hysterical um, scientific reports. But some of those turned out to be either sloppy or, well, they're blunt instruments, let's say. And that's normal when a science is new. I mean, we haven't had social media for, you know, not even 15 20 years yet. And so the first study that linked social media use and well-being was just done in 2006. And those kinds of those early studies, they did things like just count up all the time people spent on digital technology or social media and without looking at what they were doing and with whom. And that means that a kid playing Grand Theft Auto counts the same as you talking to Amina, you know, over the mm-hmm. internet. And those, we hope those are not the same, right? And that um, and that you talking to Amina improves your friendship. The other might not, although actually even video game playing, I've realized doesn't deserve at least parents sort of scorn and you know we we're all victims of a generation um and the other thing that's true is that historically we have such a tendency as a society to freak out over technological innovation and if you go back and you look at the context and you look at the history you see we did the same thing about television it was going to dumb down (laughs) civilization we did the same thing about radio we apparently did the same thing even about comic books and you know socrates and plato Famously complained about writing things down because it was going to ruin everybody's memory, you know, and so (laughs) So when you start to sort of see the forest for the trees, you're like, oh, well, you know, maybe we should put this in context and What this new science of social media has shown really very clearly is that on a population level? It's just not that terrible for us. And for relationships in particular, it's actually, on balance, a positive. And in fact, the impact on relationships is stronger to the good than any of the negative impacts of social media use and um, digital technology. And so that means, for instance, that people who have bigger networks online tend to have bigger social networks offline. That people who use social media as another way of communicating with friends that they see in other ways they strengthen those bonds. It also turns out, and people studied this and asked the question, that we are not stupid. We know the difference between an actual friend and a distant Facebook friend that's somebody you met 30 years ago that you haven't seen since in person. You know, those are not the same. And and in fact, it turns out I think the number was 40% of people's actual friends were also Facebook friends. And so there are people for whom it's a bigger problem. But what we're seeing is it's, is maybe those problems exist offline too. So somebody with a propensity for depression and anxiety is maybe that has that more exacerbated by social media use. But it's really important if you're looking for solutions to know if the problem is you know, caused by the social media or begins somewhere else, right? And so we need to be asking, smarter questions, more nuanced questions. We need more rigorous statistical analysis from a scientific point of view. We need sort of a science of social media 2.0, and we're starting to get it, which is great. And so we're going to ask better questions about context and content, and then we'll really be able to know which are the things that we should be worrying about, and here's all the things that we don't need to worry about. And let me go on the record saying, Put down your damn phone when you're with your friend <laughs> in person. Don't be looking at your phone when you're talking to somebody in person. Absolutely true. And that is one way that you know people worry, worry, worry about relationships. Um, and so we, I think it's like we're learning that skill. We're learning that this is getting in the way, and then we're going to have to sort of scale that back. But like eye contact really matters. It primes the social brain that we were talking about.
0: I want to uh, to make a slight pivot Mm -hmm. from the World Wide Web to this web metaphor for group dynamics and friendship. Um, You know, before even learning a thing about the science of friend groups, you know, we would refer to our extended friend group as a lady web or as a friend web, (laughs) and and um, and I was delighted to see that this um, web metaphor is also a way that scientists look at and interpret. Um, social groups and I I wonder um, if you could talk a little bit about all the complicated ways that um, scientists try to break down and look at how we are connected to each other Right, well
1: so right at the beginning when I was getting interested in this, sitting there at this meeting five years ago, a meeting of social neuroscientists I went into it thinking that most of what neuroscientists are spending their time doing is mapping the connections inside the brain and they are. That's what the mm-hmm. brain initiative is all about and all this stuff, you know. And we have trillions of synapses and we're just beginning to get a handle on what's going on there. But listening to them talk about social behavior, you realize that now what they're doing is mapping the web of connections out of our bodies to other people and and understanding the ripple effects of how that, what those relationships are like, how that comes back to you and your body and your brain and that web is invisible right and yet it's incredibly powerful and then the other thing that's happened that really makes the web metaphor come alive is that there's a whole field called social network analysis that has been able to well it's been enabled by the much stronger computing power that we have now there was a researcher, maybe in the early 1980s or the 70s, who was studying one of these large populations of rhesus macaques that I feature in the book. That's a kind of monkey, and he was literally mapping out um, by hand, you know, who was connected to who of these monkeys. But now, the same researchers on the same island, watching those same were the, the the descendants of those same monkeys can they take all this information and they watch them in the field and they put it into these little handheld computers and then they upload it into this software program and they hit a button (laughs) and they get this incredible map of thousands of monkeys you know and who's connected to who and who hung out with who and then you can there's all different ways that you can adjust it but you can really see what's happening because of those relationships. You can see the the monkeys that are on the periphery. And um, you see them if you're there and you're watching the monkeys, you see the guy that's like always off on the edge and never grooming with anybody and never seem to interact. And then on the chart, he's a little circle, you know, out on the edges and he's not connect. There's no lines connecting him to anybody else. And, I know, poor guy. Um, <laughs> and or by comparison, you know the monkeys that are sort of smack in the center of the group. There's all kinds of technical terms that social network scientists use for this, but that basically the centrality of, of some animals and humans. You can do the exact same thing with humans, right? And you map out these social networks, and you can see that there are some people who are just much strong, more strongly connected to to certain people or to more people, or that their friends tend to know each other more, their friends tend to be friends, there's all kinds of ways you can measure it. So we've got all these ways in which technology has enabled this new science because we can see inside the brain, like I said, we can, we can map social connections to a much greater degree. There's still sort of questions about exactly what that's going to tell us, like you can create these amazing maps. Um, And there's definitely some some real things we're finding out. But I think that science is really quite new as well. So there's much more, you know, to come. Stay tuned.
0: one last question for you and it's also kind of a confession mm-hmm. which is the words evolution and biology that appear in the subtitle to your book when when those words are applied to social relationships mm-hmm. or like gender roles or things things that to me feel way more complicated than like what can be seen on like an mri readout mm-hmm. i get my defenses up yeah. like person, <laughs> like me speaking i sort of say like you know look not everything is you know as essentialist or as defeatist in that kind of human are just built a certain way as sometimes biology or evolutionary science can make it seem and I'm curious about what you would say the limits are to what we can understand about friendship through science if there are any
1: Sure no you're you're right One of the reasons that there was a sort of early version of this science called and they called it sociobiology and then that, that came under such fire when it first was developed in the 70s um, for kind of for the reasons you're saying that this idea that, human nature dictates certain kinds of behavior that that was offensive it was sort of frightening to people it seemed politically incorrect and so they kind of have changed the name they don't really most people don't call it sociobiology anymore mainly because it just got such a bad name that they were like let's let's call it behavioral ecology or you know ethology other things there's a bunch of other Mm -hmm. terms people use um what i say about it is this There's a danger in being too reductionist, for sure. But it's Mm -hmm. also true that understanding the impulses that people have is important. And I think we have to be honest about it. The nice thing is that human beings have the wisdom to kind of change our behavior because of that. Like I think that being aware of your tendencies can help you combat them sometimes and so for instance just as an example the neuroscience of empathy and this new study of empathy is really interesting and there's all these great things about empathy I mean you must have empathy in order to have friends and to have close social bonds it's a critical piece of the social brain and what happens in empathy is that you kind of there's partly a sort of merging of the self and the other um, in, in your brain and there's different kinds of empathy there's a sort of very fundamental like sort of body empathy that's that bit when like somebody yawns and then you yawn too or you know things like that mm-hmm. then there's um, or uh, in fact like they, they did this I don't know who comes up with this stuff for science but <laughs> there was a study of the relatives of fire walkers, so people who you know as a stunt will walk with bare feet across flaming coals mm-hmm. and The person walking across the fire, their heart is beating faster and their family members' hearts are also beating faster in the audience, right? That's actually a kind of empathy. That's like the most fundamental kind. Um, But then you get all the way from that to theory of mind and this more cognitive empathy where you can understand what somebody else is thinking. And then you get to compassion and wanting to take action because of what's happening to somebody else. So those are kind of within this umbrella of empathy. But the knock on empathy is that one of the things it has revealed is that we have a tendency to an us-them kind of mentality and that actually we form in-groups and out-groups. And that's not just things like the the Jews and the Arabs in the West Bank. That's like if scientists dress one set of participants in a study in red shirts and another set in green shirts they will like compete with each other (laughs) they will want the red shirts will want to beat the green shirts because they get sort of put in a group together and um and then they they feel a camaraderie with their group an in-group thing and then they you know exclude their they work against the out group and of course there are real dangers to that but i don't think the answer lies in not knowing that that's our tendency i think the answer lies in understanding it as well as we can and then recognizing when it is holding us back and that's the thing that humans have that other species don't we have the ability to rise above some of these things and i know that that is what these evolutionary biologists who study this would say the reason i have evolution and biology in the subtitle is because that is what's new about this science this this biology understanding the link to health understanding this larger story of the survival of the friendliest and mostly i think it's an optimistic view of human nature um for the most part right we get to choose we get to choose (laughs) and it tells us that friendship should be a priority it tells us that you know this is really important in your life this is not a frivolous kind of side benefit just that's just fun this is as important for your health as diet and exercise. This is part of how human beings evolved in the world to interact is to make friends and we do it for a reason. I'm like giving myself, and I'm hoping I'm giving everybody, permission Mm -hmm. to go hang out with your friends and not to feel that, you know, that that's lesser and should be less of a priority than doing your work every night or being with your kids or, you know, get a babysitter sometimes. (laughs) Go out with your friends. Your biology will be better for you. Your health will be better. Your friend's health will be better. And, you know, you'll probably come back to your work refreshed and come back to your kids you know, in a better frame of mind. I also think, by the way, parents have to model friendship for kids. They have to model that it's an important value in their own lives. And if they're always subsuming their own need for friendship to their family, then they're sending a wrong message.
0: I love that. And I could ask you a million more questions, (laughs) but I am afraid we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Well, Thank you for having me. It's been great. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review, you know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF you can email us callyrgf at gmail.com our theme song is by Robin original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs we're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf our associate producer is Jordan Bailey and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac